Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley. I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon, and we are attorneys with the NFP Benefits Compliance Department. And we use this podcast to bring to you topics that are relevant to employer-sponsored health plans. As we mentioned last podcast, we are going to do a three-part series on single-payer systems. Last time we spoke about a couple of the different countries that have single-payer or socialized medicine, including the UK and Canada, and we also spoke about, spoke about our VA system. Today we're going to walk through a portion of what's working in the U.S. and specifically employer-sponsored healthcare coverage, comparing that to the individual market here. Um, and then next week, we next podcast, we will walk through some of the current um, proposals and the funding of those proposals. So Chase, let's start with a quick background on employer-sponsored coverage. Can you talk to us about how it got started? Great question. So let's dive into some of the history on employer-provided health insurance. I think that helps paint a full picture of how it came to prominence and what it means in our healthcare system today. Um, and it really goes back to World War II. At that time, um, there was a board called the National War Labor Board that had a lot of federal authority, and they enacted a tax provision that helped give employers a tax advantage for providing benefits. So that was probably the first thing that got this started. But then there was a several other things that came together to help turn this into a really big deal. First was the war itself. It significantly increased usage and awareness of medical advancements and drugs. Uh, so things like penicillin, some procedures weren't well known before the war and kind of became more prominent through the war. And those significantly increased the average life expectancy. So just medical advancement and awareness generally. The second thing was annual incomes for individuals and families, which was rising significantly at that time. That gives people more discretionary income, some of which could be spent on medical care. The third really gets to the carriers, and that's uh, advancements in data collection and risk analysis. Those capabilities took off, and that gave insurance firms the tools to appropriately weigh risk and set prices for potential groups of insurance purchasers. And what was the biggest group of potential insurance purchasers? Well, it's these employer groups. They're already organized. They're already set up because they're all employees of an employer. Also, employed people at that time were generally younger and healthier. It was administratively less expensive to sell insurance to a bigger group, like an employer group or a union. And companies can also avoid adverse selection, which is a big problem for insurance companies. Employees are already showing up at their jobs. Health insurance you know, is already attractive, but it's mostly an add-on for an employee getting coverage through their employer. That means employees would enroll as part of their job and they wouldn't just enroll when they were sick. So you get out of that adverse selection problem. So interesting. I just love looking at the historical aspect of things. And this is a, yeah. this is a great beginning. So tell me how employer-based coverage has grown since that time. Yeah. So to give you an idea on growth and numbers, back in the 40s and 50s, again, this is right after World War II, there were around 10 million folks covered under employer plans. By 1970, that number was close to 150 million. Not only is that a huge increase, but it far exceeded the increases in lives covered under individual plans. Now, Medicare and Medicaid, those are two other uh, coverage sources that we'll talk about today. They emerged on the scene in the mid-60s. That helped cover some individuals that were sort of left behind on the employer track. But you can see the huge increase in employer group coverage just in that 25 years or so. So, okay, and so take us to today. Yeah, so the numbers vary slightly depending on which study, but on average, it's between 
55 and 60% of the U.S. population is covered under an employer-sponsored group health plan now. That comes out to between 180 to 185 million people. Mm. So that's compared, if we compare that to individual and other sources of coverage here, um, for individual private health insurance plan, that's about 7 to 8% of the population. Medicare and Medicaid cover another 30% or so. And that leaves about nine to ten that are uh, percent that are uninsured. So that kind of breaks down the coverage generally across the map for the United States. Um, but as you can see, the majority of our U.S. population, again, that's 55 to 60 percent, get their health insurance coverage through their employer. So not an insignificant number there. So and importantly, it's we need to look at that segment of the population to see how things are working. So before we get to talking about whether employees like it um, through their employer. Can you just expand a bit on what you think the employer model has lasted so long? Yeah, so um, employee satisfaction is definitely one part of that, but let's look at a few other reasons why. I think first you have to recognize the tax breaks that come along with it, of that's course. very important. Uh, beyond that though, there's a few other reasons why it seems to be working so well. First, it helps employers themselves attract and retain employees. So it's a tool that they can use um, to attract talent. According to one study, 56% of employees feel that health insurance coverage is a key factor in their choice to stay at their current job. Mm. So if employers have a strong benefit offering, it can help attract and retain top talent. Uh, a second reason is that as employers take on a parental role as the facilitator of benefits and health insurance for employees, employers can help improve the health of employees so for the employer, as that cycle goes with a healthier workforce, comes more efficient workers with a more efficient work, comes better production and with better production comes better outcomes in the employer and, and uh, company world. That means better profits. Right. So it helps the employer to take an interest in employees health. And we'll talk about some innovative ways that employers are doing this here in a second. Uh, but the third reason I wanted to touch on is the convenience for employees. Uh, for employees, uh, a centralized location or point of reference for all their benefit needs creates simplicities and efficiency. So I know as an employee that I, if I need to understand my benefits, I can go to my HR benefits, uh, in my benefits department. They'll point me to the right place, whether that's a call to the carrier, to the provider, or both. Um, I already know and trust my employer and my HR department, hopefully, as an employee. So it's natural for me to lean on them as an employee and go there with benefit insurance and insurance questions. Mm -hmm. We know how confusing the whole world is of insurance for a right. lot of people. So it gets back to the ease of access in a centralized system, even if insurance itself is complicated. Um, at least I know I can rely on my employer. So the employer takes on this parental role as facilitator, uh, facilitator and primary point person. That kind of reaches back to the other two points as the employer has better options and plays a stronger role as the parent they can attract and retain better ta talent. Um, it's one less thing I have to worry about as an employee and as a human. I know my employer is looking out for my health insurance needs. You know, that's, that is so important. Um, but let's take a look at employee satisfaction because I think that plays a huge role when it comes to the employer model um, and really in looking at whether this is an effective model. Let's look at some surveys. The answer is uh, generally yes, employees are happy with uh, their employer-sponsored insurance coverage experience. One survey showed that 71% of Americans are satisfied uh, with their current employer-provided health coverage, 
And then in addition to that, over 85% of employees like the idea of their employer and their insurance providers working together to improve health and lower costs for employees. So most employees really like this idea of an employer taking a large role uh, to work on behalf of the employee with the goal of improving health and lowering costs. Yeah, I mean, the employer has a vested interest, right, right. In, in the employee's health. And so they, they certainly are going to do things that a, a third unrelated third party may not do. Right. So the bottom line here from these numbers and from, um, you know, sort of what we've looked at, the vast majority of employees that are covered by the system that covers the, ma the vast majority of U.S. citizens, uh, they are happy with how the employer-provided system is working for them. So that stokes the fire of the argument against a full single-payer system, right? If there's a model out there that's working and it's covering the vast majority of U.S. citizens, why would you want to blow that all up and go to a different system? Uh, keep what's working well and then make smaller changes to what's not working well. And I think that's one of the key takeaways from our discussion today. So let's look at cost. How are employer-sponsored coverage, um, how are they concerned about cost? How do they compare? Yeah, I was just about to go there because we do have to talk about costs, right? There are really two things to discuss when we talk about costs. The first is the employee's portion of the premium itself. Um, employers generally contribute a large portion of the premium, which means the employee gets their coverage at a highly reduced rate. Um, one study says that employers on average cover over 80 percent. It's actually 82.5, if we're being exact, of an employee's single only coverage and over 70 percent of an employee's family rate. In other words, employers help employees with a big portion of the premium itself. That by itself is a huge benefit. Uh, that gets back to this idea of a parental role that most employers view themselves in, and they're making it a lot easier for employees to get covered and make health coverage easier to deal with. That helps employers get back, uh, get their employees back to work. Uh, but many employees really have no idea what the actual cost is, right? We, we have a hard time quantifying that and understanding what the value is of what the employer is bringing to the table. The ACA's W-2 reporting requirement is actually helpful in this regard. Employers have to report the value of the employer-sponsored coverage. And I know that a lot of employers view that as kind of a pain because they have to calculate it and figure out where it's reported and report it properly every year. Um, but it's really a helpful number that the employer can point to in showing the value they're providing to the employee. Right. I think I think communicating the value of coverage is, is generally just an area that most employers need work on. So right. that, that is a key indicator. Right. Even, uh, for if it's them. On, even if it's on W-2, it's not always pointed out on W-2 and employees may look at their W-2 and not understand what that even means. Right. So you're right. Being able to communicate that so that an employee understands what they're getting. But let's get back to the costs. And I think that's really what, what a lot of people are concerned with. And that's the second discussion point here on uh, costs. That's the rise in premium costs generally. So on this, it's no secret that even employees covered under their employer plans are really concerned with cost. Um, again, getting back to, to a survey information, 71% of employees noted that they remained concerned about rising health care costs. So it's not like that worry just goes away because you're getting coverage through the employer. But if you look at the difference in rising rates, the group market appears to be much more stable. It's seeing a much slower growth rate than the individual market. So what is the growth rate comparison? Yeah, so the group market definitely has a smaller growth rate when it comes to premiums. Um, looking at 2018 versus 20, uh, from 2017, the average annual premium for employer-sponsored family coverage uh, was up around 3 to 5%. Which seems nominal. 
Right. It's not a huge amount. And you talk about regular cost of living adjustments, they're in that three to five percent range. That's been pretty steady from year to year um, over the past several years for the employer group market. Um, on the other hand, the individual market, there's much more fluctuation. Some of it depends on the state, but the average is more in the 15 to 20 percent increase range with some uh, individual rates in certain states going up 30, 40, even 50 percent. So you just see a huge, much bigger fluctuation, a lot more instability in the rate growth. Does that take into account um, uh, plans that are offered outside the, the marketplace as well as inside? Yeah, that's kind of both combined. Um, so, yeah, it does. So you can see the group market is obviously much more stable when it comes to rate increases generally. Are there cost containment strategies that would work better um, through employers than in a single payer environment? Yeah, so there are there are many. It really gets back to the idea of innovation. And I mentioned that earlier, being employers being able to be innovative. Um, we talked a little bit about this on our last podcast, um, the private business world having a, a bit more incentive to be creative and innovative, um, primarily because they reap the profits if they can come up with better solutions. Uh, but there's always going to be built in incentive in the private world that just isn't there with a government run system. Uh, but let's take a quick step back and understand the uh, employer plan structures for a moment um, to help understand where these incentives come into and, and innovations come into play. Employers usually choose between having a fully insured medical plan where the carrier comes in and takes the risk or a self-insured medical plan where the employer itself bears the risk. Um, according to recent studies, just to give you an idea of what the percentage is, more than half of employers are self-insured. That number is around 61%. Uh, but in either environment, there's this built-in incentive to try and save on costs, whether it's the carrier trying to do that or the employer. In a fully insured arrangement, the carrier is always interested in having a more healthy population and doing activities to promote health. Again, that obvious reason is less claims means more profit. In a self-insured arrangement, the employer's not usually, and they actually shouldn't be profiting from their group health plan setup, but they can still have a pretty strong interest in controlling costs. Less claims means less expense. So they're not necessarily trying to make money, but they're trying to avoid having to spend money. So in either situation, carriers and employers are looking for ways to help educate employees, train employees, get employees on a healthier track. And that's where a lot of the innovation comes into play. So so let's innovation is a big uh, topic at yeah. NFP. We really um, have taken an interest in innovation. But talk to us about innovation in this context and, and some of the things that employers are doing. Right. So obviously, we're not going to be able to hit every idea here. There's so much innovation going on. Uh, but there's lots of different things that are going on that we can talk about. Um, a few things employers are doing generally. First is wellness programs. We've talked a lot about wellness programs. There's a lot of compliance issues that come up for wellness programs. But the idea here is employees are taking a bigger interest in programs that attempt to make employees more aware of their health, their habits, and their conditions. And this can be through a health fair where third parties come on site and do health assessments, flu shots, and even just general education. Some innovations are even more basic, just the employer providing on-site solutions like an on-site medical clinic, on-site nurses, even on-site yoga instructions and classes, and then giving employees the time off to actually be able to attend those classes without feeling guilty. Um, other employers have on-site gyms or they pay for gym memberships and encourage employees to get out there and go to the gym. Right. It is different when you have an employer sponsoring those activities than when it's not. Uh, certainly it gives employees more of an incentive. 
Right. And they feel like, okay, the, my employer feels like this is important because they're willing to provide it for me or they're willing to reimburse my membership. To me, that means the employer is taking an interest in my health, right? So that feels good. Other innovations are more technical um, and get into some technological advancements, but these are things like apps on your iPhone or your Android phone that make it easier to access doctors or to access online enrollment systems. So educational videos within enrollment systems that explain coverages like deductibles and out-of-pocket maximums. I can just click on a quick video to help me understand what a deductible is. Apps where you can Skype or FaceTime with a doctor or nurse, that telemedicine idea. Those are all innovations that private companies have come up with to help access doctors in a much easier and a more efficient way. That helps keep employees out of the doctor's office waiting lines, uh, stops their travel times, and helps employees get prescriptions right over the phone. Imagine that in the VA system. Right. Can you imagine them, <laughs> them purchasing some of these innovative uh, methods of trying to assist in, you know, the patients? Right. There's just not a whole lot of incentive there to do it, right? So, yeah, having uh, prescriptions delivered directly to your home, that's a, an innovation that's uh, come up that helped you know, those areas save employees time. Uh, other innovations come in the form of planned structures and designs. For example, we've spent some time on a podcast talking about direct primary care, um, just the idea that you can carve out benefits, you can help employees get back to the basics of seeing one primary care physician, and that physician gets to know you better and works more closely with you in preventive and ongoing health care. That's a little bit different from just your normal health care coverage where you go to the doctor when you have a problem. Another is reference-based pricing, that the plan takes control of costs a bit more by identifying a price and a few providers that are willing to take that price and then charging employees more if they want to go to a different provider. Just a different way of looking at it. Another one is discounts for providers that have better outcomes. If the employer or the carrier can identify providers that are efficient and have better outcomes, that's beneficial to the plan and to the employer, right? Employees are in and out of the office, they're up and going and ready to get back to work. That helps the employer with plan costs, and it helps the employee feel better and their production goes up. I mean, I have to think of this in a free market situation, that the providers would be more incentivized for work if they are receiving, obviously, more patients at a lower cost versus if it's, an, if it's a government-required um, payment system that's just a lower cost without additional right. patients. It kind of takes away the incentive for the providers as well. That's exactly right. Um, so the last thing I wanted to talk about is um, about prescription drug costs. This is a major um, a, a component of the plan. It's a major reason and, and part of healthcare costs overall. Studies have shown that prescription drug coverage is one of the top three most important things when it comes to plan benefits and satisfaction. The other two quickly are preventive and emergency care. Uh, but employers and carriers are coming up with some innovative solutions to curb prescription drug costs. Those include using mail-order drugs, um, we just talked a little bit about that, incentivizing employees to use generic drugs when possible, and working with uh, drug manufacturers for rebates on certain drugs. So those are some innovations that are going on in the, in the drug world, um, prescription drug world. One other innovative solution that we've talked about includes the uh, medical tourism, tourism that we talked about a little bit on a, a podcast, Suzanne. Or pharmacy tourism. Pharmacy tourism, right. One employer was coming up with the idea of having an employee go to Tijuana to buy a three-month supply of, dr of prescription drugs. The employer would pay all the expenses and even throw in a $500 bonus um, if the employer were to choose that. That was actually a government-provided coverage. It was a Utah 
right. providing to their employees. But right. again, you think of it in the context of a state-based government versus the federal government imposing it. It's different. Right. They, were, they were incentivized to, to be creative. Right. So with that incentive, they figured out a cheaper way to um, cover these drugs, even if it's not something that employees would, you know, maybe they choose not to take it. Or maybe there's too many compliance concerns with it, but it's still an innovative design to try and save costs. Sure. Um, so sooner or later, innovation leads to programs, designs, and systems that provide better outcomes to employees. And I think most would agree that, as we've talked about, the private market is better suited at stoking those embers of innovation. Yeah, I mean, let's let's think about that. What, how much of these innovations do you think the government would go along with if they were were running the system in a single payer system? Right. You mentioned the VA coming up with some of these ideas. Probably unlikely. Um, there's. I, th I don't think any other countries using a single-payer system have these types of innovations. Um, it seems unlikely that the government will be spent spending much money developing and you know, coming up with new innovations like that. Government programs are generally more about access and fairness, not as much about innovation and efficiency. So I do think you'd miss out on a lot of the innovations when it comes to a true single-payer system. The current employer model seems better suited to new and interesting innovation for healthcare delivery and access. So that thank you, Chase. I mean, that gives us a lot to think about the employer model. Obviously, we are we are in support of the employer model, as you can see by our discussion today. But but the reason there's some really solid reasons behind it. It seems to be working well. I mean, the employee there's employee satisfaction. The premium rate um, comparison is clearly stabilized in the group market. Right. Um, the private market is more innovative. And they seem to continue to seek innovative designs to help curb costs. And I just have to imagine that it's more than the government would do. So I do think it's pretty clear that just blowing up the employer group model um, would not be in the best interest of the vast majority of our country. And that's those that are covered under an employer-sponsored plan. Right. So uh, with that, we will now take on some of these proposed um, single-payer models that are being proposed and will in the last Congress and will be proposed I'm sure in the next Congress and so we'll take we'll dig into those a little bit more and some that are being proposed at the state level next time right so with that thank you for joining us today and as we like to say that's a wrap that's a wrap thank you very much thank you